Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Prescott. Today, Wednesday, December 1st, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in a pivotal case that could result in the repeal of Roe v. Wade. The 1973 landmark decision protects a woman's right to have an abortion. Since Amy Coney Barrett, who were put in place by Donald Trump, women across the nation are worried that they will lose the right to abortion. According to a 2021 Gallup poll, 58% of people turning it. Nevertheless, Mississippi is asking the Supreme Court to affirm its judgment banning abortions in the state after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Mississippi also has a six-week ban on abortions that has been put on pause by lower courts. If the nation's top court agrees with Mississippi's push to overturn Roe versus Wade, the state would essentially ban abortions in their entirety with the exception of cases of rape or preservation of the mother's life. A ruling in Mississippi's favor would no doubt mean other conservative states will follow their example. If the Supreme Court does overrule Roe versus Wade in Mississippi, dozens of other GOP-led states across the U.S. could move to either ban abortion in its entirety or at an extremely early point in pregnancy when most women don't even yet know if they are pregnant. The Supreme Court currently has six conservatives. Six of nine of the total judges are men. Our guest is Dolores Huerta, a mother, a grandmother, an icon of the women's movement. And across the United States, the trials, the Rittenhouse trial, uh, the trial in Charlottesville, Amand uh, Aubrey uh, trial and some additional trials are coming up exposing this chasm on race across the United States. Also, new revelations on the assassination of Malcolm X. Dr. Piniel Joseph will join us for a wide-ranging conversation and we get some updates on Barbados becoming the world's newest um, uh, republic breaking ties after 396 years with the Queen of England. We will also hear from Rihanna who was declared a national hero. Um, we'll hear a clip of Rihanna. No, she actually won't be here on our show. We'll play a clip of her. Um, we live in a global world. We to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Eileen Alfandari. Abortion rights are on the line at the Supreme Court in historic arguments over the landmark ruling nearly 50 years ago that declared a nationwide right to end a pregnancy. 
The justices are weighing whether to uphold a Mississippi law that bans abortions after 15 weeks, which is well before a fetus can survive outside the womb. The court has a 6-3 majority that has been transformed by three appointees of former President Trump who had pledged to appoint justices he said would oppose abortion rights. Mississippi argues that viability is an arbitrary standard that doesn't take sufficient account of the state's interest in regulating abortion. The Guttmacher Institute, a reproductive rights research organization, has estimated 26 states would move to ban abortion if the court rules to uphold the Mississippi law. Republicans took to the Senate floor yesterday to say state legislatures should have that right. Steve Daines of Montana leads the Senate's pro-life caucus. This puts our nation at the crossroads of history. We have the opportunity to end an extreme judicially imposed abortion regime. We have the opportunity to write a new chapter of American history where the people's elected representatives get to decide abortion policy in this country. Connecticut Democrat Chris Murphy referred to the school shooting at Oxford High School in Michigan, which left three students dead and eight others injured. He called Republicans out on what he said was their hypocrisy in speaking about the sanctity of human life while refusing to take action to stem the gun violence that claims thousands of lives each year. Do not lecture us about the sanctity, the importance of life. When 100 people every single day are losing their lives to guns, when kids go to school fearful that they won't return home because a classmate will turn a gun on them, when it is in our control whether this happens, you care about life? Then get these dangerous military-style weapons off the streets, out of our schools. Authorities say it was a 15-year-old sophomore who opened fire at his Michigan high school yesterday. Oakland County Sheriff Michael Bouchard says investigators are still trying to determine a motive for the shooting at Oxford High School. He said the shooter isn't talking. Bouchard said the semi-automatic handgun the boy was carrying had seven more rounds in it when he surrendered to authorities. Preliminary investigation revealed that the weapon used in the shooting was purchased on November 26th, four days ago, by the boy's father. The gun had uh, 15 round magazines. We found two of them. There allegedly was three. The three students who were killed were a 16-year-old boy and two girls, one 14 years old, the other 17. The 15-year-old alleged shooter had posted pictures of the gun and of practicing shooting. One parent said her son had heard threats there could be a shooting and decided to stay home. The sheriff said authorities didn't know about the rumors until after the attack. Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar played a harrowing death threat. She said she received hours after she got off the phone with Colorado Republican Lauren Boebert, who called Omar a member of the Jihad Squad and likened her to a bomb-carrying terrorist. The recording was filled with racial epithets, expletives, and threatened her life several times. You will not live much longer, bitch. I can almost guarantee you that.
Boebert's remarks were just the latest example of a Republican lawmaker making a personal attack against another member of Congress. Omar said condemning such remarks should not be a partisan issue and urged House Republican leaders to do more to tamp down anti-Muslim hatred within their ranks. Yet while some members of the Republican Party have condemned this, to date, the Republican Party leadership has done nothing to hold their members accountable. It is time for the Republican Party to actually do something. Omar was joined by Rashida Tlaib, Jamal Bowman, and Andre Carson. Carson, who's also Muslim, said he's working with Democratic leadership on a House resolution that could address the issue. A panel of U.S. health advisors has narrowly backed a closely watched COVID-19 pill from Merck, setting the stage for a likely authorization of the first drug that people could take at home to treat the coronavirus. The Food and Drug Administration panel voted 13 to 10 that the antiviral drug's benefits outweigh its risks including potential birth defects if used during pregnancy. Most experts backing the treatment stressed it should not be used by anyone who's pregnant and called on the FDA to recommend extra precautions before the drug is prescribed, such as pregnancy tests for women of childbearing age. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. The women's movement fought hard for Roe versus Wade uh, to protect a woman's right in the United States to have an abortion. The case for women was argued by Norma Markovi, known in her lawsuit under the pseudonym Jane Roe, who in 1969 became pregnant with her third child. McCorvey wanted an abortion, but she lived in Texas where abortion was illegal except when necessary to save the mother's life. Now, prior to Roe versus Wade, women dying from backstreet botched abortions were commonplace. And if Roe versus Wade is repealed, it will have a disproportionate impact on low income with few resources who could travel to get an abortion. Uh, let us go actually to a clip now from uh, Reuters that includes a woman who had an abortion speaking out. The U.S. Supreme Court is set to hear arguments on Wednesday in the most important abortion case in decades as the state of Mississippi puts up a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision that solidified a constitutional right to abortion. If the court overturns Roe, as some supporters fear, it could turn back the clock on abortion access in Mississippi and other states to a time when most of the U.S. criminalized abortion. As a woman who found herself needing an abortion in 1973, it's a time Barbara Phillips remembers well. It was devastating, and uh, I, was, I was desperate. Months before she was set to start law school, Phillips was shocked to learn she was pregnant. I was using birth control responsibly. It failed. I'm supposed to be going to Northwestern in, in August, and, and I'm pregnant. Then 24, Phillips lived in a small town in Mississippi where the procedure was still not legally available. With help from a feminist group, Phillips traveled to New York for an abortion. I was determined to decide for myself what I wanted to do with my life and with my body. Now 72, she does not regret her decision. 
Phillips attended Northwestern Law School and became a civil rights lawyer with a long career. Years later, she had a son. But nearly half a century later, Americans are deeply divided on abortion rights. National Right to Life President Carol Tobias said her organization was excited that the Supreme Court had agreed to hear the case. We would love, of course, to see the court take this even further and use it, um, if not to completely overturn Roe, at least as a way to start to overturn Roe because that needs to happen. Um, but we're very excited. Mississippi is among 12 states with so-called trigger laws designed to ban abortion if Roe versus Wade is overturned. More states would likely follow. With U.S. abortion rights under threat, Phillips, like many civil rights advocates, fears the consequences of a return to pre-Roe times. But I'm afraid that many more women and girls will be in back alleys with coat hangers, you know, I, I, I worry we're going to find them on country roads dead. Okay, and uh, the high court, the Supreme Court's ruling could have major implications also for the state of Texas, which joined 11 other states last June in enacting a measure that automatically bans abortion if Roe versus Wade is overturned. This without having to call a special legislative session. And in September, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled five to four to leave in place a Texas law that bans most abortions in the state, not allowing the procedure even in the case of rape or incest. Also, it bans the procedure after six weeks of pregnancy, even before most women know they're pregnant. Additionally, it offers a bounty of $10,000, basically paying Texas residents to spy on each other. And um, of course, uh, um, people are saying that this law will disproportionately impact impoverished women, especially women of color, who already face racial disparities in maternal health. So a, a lot uh, hanging here, a, a, a lot um, the, of what the women's movement fought long and hard for now under uh, threat. Now, I'd like to uh, welcome our guest, uh, Dolores Huerta. Dolores, of course, is a civil rights icon. She is very well known for the role she played um, with Cesar Chavez uh, in the uh, Farm Workers Union. And, uh, but what uh, Dolores, who has continued since that time in her fight and struggle uh, for human rights, is that she, in 2014, she organized people in Colorado to f vote against Amendment 67, which would have extended the definition of person and child in the Colorado Criminal Co Code and the Colorado Wrongful Death Act to include unborn human beings, which could have uh, restricted um, reproductive uh, rights. Dolores Suerte is a mother, a grandmother. Uh, she has received the Medal of Freedom by President Barack Obama, uh, co-founder and first vice president emeritus of the United Farm Workers of America. She is a member of Democratic Socialists of America and heads the Dolores Huerta uh, Foundation. Uh, Dolores Huerta, so glad that you're able to join us today. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Marge, and uh, 
Uh, we know that uh, hopefully his, and, uh, his, his history will not be made today um, or during this whole uh, argument uh, before the uh, United States Supreme Court. But you know, the hypocrisy of the Republicans is amazing. Here you have all of these Republican lawmakers who are uh, going to court to stop the mandates against uh, uh, masking and vaccine uh, to stop uh, the COVID-19 epidemic where people are dying. You know, where we have had hundreds of thousands of people that have died, and yet they talk about pro-life. And yeah, as, as Senator Murphy uh, did, did also say that here they put want to put a gun in every person's hand where more people are going to be killed by gun violence, and yet they talk that they say that they're pro-life. Uh, they are against the right now uh, the argument uh, that is going on with the Build Back Better Act, where we're trying to get universal uh, child care uh, for families and especially for women. And uh, you know they're not agreeing to any of that either. So their hypocrisy is just just uh, amazing. So uh, we we don't know what's going to happen in terms of the decision that's going to come out. But the one thing that we do know is that we've got to stop. We've got to keep organizing. Uh, we know that they use the issue of abortion to divide people. Now, this is the only way that the only reason that they're even using this when they get people who are Catholics or evangelicals uh, to, you know, get on their bandwagon and to uh, vote for the Republican Party. So, uh, as I said before, you know, I'm also, by the way, on the board of the Feminist Majority <clears throat> Foundation and part of the Equal Rights uh, uh, Coalition also, because we're also trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed in the Senate so that we can have uh, equal rights for women as part of the Constitution of the United States. So this is a declaration of war against all women. And, of course, we have to continue to keep organizing. Uh, this is the only way that we're going to be able to stop this. Uh, I'm going to call them lunatics, right? These lunatics that, that are uh, trying to take over women's bodies. You know, there's a, a great saying <clears throat> by um, one of the great Mexican presidents, Benito Juarez, and he said, respecting other people's rights is peace. If a woman, a woman wants to get an abortion and she does have that right, that is her business and nobody else's business, right? It doesn't affect any other person. And that's the one thing that I think that we have to say to people. This is a question of a woman's choice, a woman to decide what she will do with her own body. And I think we, just, we have to just keep saying that over and over and over again. So we can say to women out there that are confused, if you want to have 11 kids like I have, or you don't want to have any kids like my daughter Juanita, who prefers dogs and cats, you know, that is your own personal business, and nobody should interfere with a woman's body. Absolutely. And, and Dolores, I mean, this is so scary. I mean, I I worked for a while uh, helping out a mom. I was a, a mother's helper of a young Puerto Rican um, mother um, with two children who died, lost her life in one of those backstreet abortions. She was a single mom. She was struggling already with, with two kids, and it certainly was her right to decide if she should have a third kid or not. I mean, really heartbreaking. The other thing I wanted you to comment on, 
uh, Dolores, you make the point of the hypocrisy of this all. But, you know, a lot of those who are claiming that they are for a right to life movement and protect the uh, the child, the unborn child. But it seems as though their support stops right there, because look at the lack of support um, for uh, mothers, you know, from paid leave, from wage work, no right to welfare or a wage for moms who are working full time. Yes, and so many women are struggling. I mean, they're, in fact, I, I think you heard the recent reports where people are not having children because they cannot afford to have children. You know, a part of the Build Back Better Act also is to have two years of free community college. Every Every parent wants to have their child have a better life. They want them to have a good education. And here we are, the only country in the developed world that does not have free college tuition, you know, that our, our kids can, can get a, an education free. You know, even as you know, in Cuba, everybody there has a free college education, but not in the United States. And in Europe, uh, people have a free college education. So this is why I say these Republicans have to be called out on their hypocrisy. Uh, they do everything that they can uh, to, to keep our children from being educated. They do everything that they can to keep our children from being healthy. And now they're doing all that they can to keep our children from being protected from COVID-19. So, I mean, they really, they're, they're standing on sand. Uh, their, their arguments are, 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 you might say they have all kinds of holes in them. And they've got to be called out uh, for what they are doing. They're actually demonizing our children. And uh, we've got to call them out on this. Yeah, and, and also, Dolores, just to add to what you're saying, the, the U.S. Um, stands at 5.9 infant deaths per 1,000. The U.S. is the only industrialized nation in the entire world where maternal mortality is rising. And the U.S. has nearly the highest maternal mortality rate among industrialized uh, countries. And of course, um, uh, black infants are four times as likely to die from complications, um, you know, as, as well as their mothers also more more likely to die. So, uh, Dolores, I mean, that just underscores the hypocrisy that you are talking about. And also, I wanted you to say a bit more. You've mentioned the Build Back Better Act uh, um, earlier in, in speaking. And again, Focusing on what's in the Build Back Better Act, I mean, I noticed, uh, saw an article this morning that Senator Manchin of West Virginia isn't sure that he's going to support the extension of child tax credits, right, only for a year. So you contrast that with all of the, the thing about the rights of a fetus before it is born, but when children are born, you're ready to throw them under the bus. Dolores Huerta. Yeah, and I would say that, too, about all of these religious organizations, including yeah, the Catholic I Church. I mean, they don't really do anything for children. You know, all, every every uh, parent out there, they struggle. They struggle uh, to keep their children fed and clothed and, again, uh, getting them educated. And, and, yes, our children should be put first, not last, in terms of all of the benefits and services that we have in our society. Uh, if we did that, then we know that we could really count on having a better future, not, not only for them, but for our country. And so, you know, we have a lot of work to do. Uh, but again, we've got to, you know, continue to organize, continue to inform, continue to educate if we're going to get over this, this craziness that, we, that exists in our country today. 
Right. And and uh, also the, the whole business about the Hyde Amendment, which was a legislative uh, provision barring the use of federal funds to pay for abortion, except to save the life of the woman or if the pregnancy arises from incest and uh, and rape. Uh, this was passed um, way back in 1976. So they've been trying to chip away at this thing for a long time. And then you had organizations like NARAL, remember them, the uh, NARAL uh, Pro-Choice America, and fundraising that, go that goes for Women's rights organizations, to me, you contrast that to the fundraising that goes into um, the right to life movement. I mean, there's, uh, you know, there's no competition there. I mean, in Texas, the pro-choice people, thousands. So, uh, Dolores, this also shows that people on our also not putting their money where they're just some final thoughts from you, Dolores, on all of this, and um, you know what? Any predictions on what you think will happen in this case, Dolores Huerta? That it'll be kind of interesting to see how it, uh, how what, what the decision, uh, what kind of a decision will come out. Uh, they might want to just compromise and say that the justices might want to just com compromise and say, well, we'll continue. Uh, you know, going forward, let every state decide what they're going to do and kind of dodge uh, the bullet that way. Or they might just come out and say that uh, abortion is illegal uh, all the way around. We don't know what, what is going to happen. But, you know, I mentioned the Equal Rights Amendment. This is another thing that is right now stuck in the Senate of the United States of America. You know, the state of Virginia was a 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. And this is something that is really not discussed that much. But if we could pass the Equal Rights Amendment, that would also have some influence in terms of a woman's right to abortion. So we just have to keep that in mind. And, you know, it's time, it's time that we were able to ha have equal rights for women be part of the Constitution of the United States of America. And that that would solve a lot of the issues that women continue to struggle. They say that you can judge a country by the way that it teaches, the, the way that it treats its women and its children. Well, uh, the United States of America, we still have a long way to go in, ter in terms of the way that women and children are treated in our country. So we've got to always keep that in mind. And I know there's so many, many issues that are facing us today. But if we could make our country a secure place for women, a place where women can take leadership, that would solve a lot, a lot of the problems that we have. Right. And, and Dolores, we know have spoken about this and have supported these efforts before because we know the workload that women carry certainly is unequal. We do two-thirds of the world's work for 5% of the world's income and the, that stat, that's a worldwide stat from the UN, but looking in the US we also see the same thing. Well, Dolores uh, Huerta, you are a marvel. <laughs> uh, you're always out there in the front lines and standing uh, with the grassroots for women's rights, for human rights uh, generally. We hope to have you back uh, again very soon. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thank you so very much. And Dolores, for people, they can go online to find information about the Dolores Huerta Foundation, right? And what they can do to support it. Yes, right now we're in the middle of the redistricting fight and we're going to there be seems having a march, right uh -huh. march in Fresno on Saturday uh, to, to protest the redistricting. Right. Okay. Well, Dolores, thank you. All the best to you. Thank you for joining us. We are going to uh, take, all right, Dolores.
Yeah, and, and for our listeners, there seems to be a little technical issue. My my voice gets cut um, for a second or so, so just just stay with us. We're, we're working on resolving that. We're going to take our station break, and then coming up, we're just going to have a means a lot for not only for Barbados, but the entire Caribbean region and indeed the whole of the African diaspora. And waiting in the wings us for a wide-ranging uh, conversation Alrighty, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and more music there from my home island of Barbados. Um, um, in 29 Palms in the high desert of uh, California. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Ireland. And now, uh, those of you who have been watching the news or who listened to our show yesterday, you might know that my home island of Barbados has broken uh, ties with the Queen of England after three hundred and ninety six years um, cutting those ties Barbados the only place in the entire world that was ruled by England for 300 years straight without ever changing hands um, and on the 55th anniversary of our independence uh, Barbados was yesterday declared the Republic of Barbados. We now have a new president, uh, Sandra Mason, joining our prime minister, also a woman, the first woman prime minister's endeavor. And it really, um, it, it opens up so much. Uh, we have to see how it all goes. And um, I'm, I want to now uh, play you some of what happened in the ceremony of Barbados becoming uh, independent. You'll be hearing the voice of the end of the speech of our new president, President Sandra Mason. But then you will hear the voice of a young um, a woman um, who is uh, Cindy Celeste representing the youth of uh, Barbados, but prior to that, Rihanna, all y'all know who Rihanna is. She was declared a national hero. She was there, and we will hear her acceptance speech. Now, um, in Cindy Celeste's speech, you'll hear a reference to Barrow, who was the first prime minister of Barbados after independence, and he tried uh, to uh, at that then to have Barbados become a republic, but he he lost that. And also, you'll hear reference to Bussa. Bussa led uh, a slave rebellion and a rebellion of those enslaved in Barbados in 1816. So let us go now. We'll hear from Rihanna and then uh, from the other speakers. Let's go to those clips. Good morning, Barbados. This is a day that I would never, ever forget. It's also a day that I never saw coming. Um, Bar Barbadians are proud people, you know? We are probably the proudest people I know. 
And no matter where I go in the world, I take that pride with me. No matter where we go, the world is gonna know that we Bajan to the bone. No matter if it's accent, the constant missing Shafet, the sunshine, the people, man, the people. Y'all are the true heroes of Barbados. And I take y'all with me wherever I go. I'm so proud to be a Bajan. I'm gonna be a Bajan till the day I die. This is still the only place I've ever called home. I love Barbados, I love you guys, and I pray that the youth continue to push Barbados forward. I'm so proud of you. Prime Minister Mia Motley, thank you so much for honoring me in this way. I have traveled the world and received several awards and recognitions, but nothing, nothing compares to being recognized in the soil that you grew in. So I thank you so much for this. Thank you. The spirit, the spirit of emancipation has reawakened to say the time has come to continue the pursuit for our freedom, to stop calling the symbol of our independence a broken trident when we sing our anthem. We raise voice to proclaim ourselves heritage guardians and fates craftsmen, but of late, we seem to have forgotten. So when it comes to this transition, the court of public opinion seems decidedly factioned, de facto divided and fractured by factors that seem to find the pillars of democracy threatened in the case of the citizens and the republic. There are progressives and skeptics and the flat out against it. The progressives already done reached them verdict. I'm just waiting to hear the sentence. The skeptics still trying to figure out how to sift through some of the evidence and the last set got a whole set of different reasons. Wonder about the people advocating for this decision. Wonder if anybody can ever take the time to answer all them questions or if the litigators that pushed this task across the docket got the judge, the jury, and the executioner in them back pocket, and some, some people just ain't with it. Because they prefer the comfort of the status quo to the uncertainty of change, and I get it. The absence of education breeds a proliferation of misinformation. You can't incline a mind to common sense if the ability to do it ain't exactly common, but, but when Barrow, the right excellent, fathered our independence in 1966. He added to the foundations laid by our ancestors from resistance and rebellion to emancipation, recognizing that the long walk to freedom had only just begun, that each successive victory won was merely a step towards a Barbados every one of us could be proud to say we come from his vision. Friends of all, satellites of none, did not end with the realization of independence. That was just the beginning of the conversation. And somewhere along the lines, the lines of communication crossed and his message was lost in translation. Recall his frustration when he begged us, take a harder look at your reflection. Look, ladies and gentlemen, we ain't done.
look back and see how far we have come from 1979 when the first whispers of a republic were silenced by the findings of the Cox Commission. After the failings of the West Indies Federation shattered the confidence in our capacity for self-governance and Barrow's radical version of independence had enough people upon the fence. But then, only about 20 years hence, after every governor general except the first one was actually a native born from Bohe, Beijing, the conversation kicked back up again. Even though the honors still came from a foreign sovereign, something, something about the local landscape had changed. So when the Ford Commission was named, their unanimous recommendation proclaimed the resurgence of faith in crafting our own fate to be a republic in nature as well as in name today tried and failed to rekindle the flame, we finally raised the flag of a nation no longer clinging to colonial coattails for its identity. And maybe, maybe we've been so focused on searching for the problems that we do not recognize the opportunity that we have been given. The way shedding the vestiges of a monarchy means we get to denounce the moniker of Little England and vest the powers of the state in the hands of every Barbadian citizen. So nah, we can't be done. In fact, we know got work to do. The baton that changed hands from Bussa to Barrow now get passed to me and you, and we owe it to our nation builders and the generations that follow us to make sure we contribute. We turning over a new page of history and starting a new chapter with the ability to self-pen what comes after so. And on that note, I'd like to welcome Dr. Pinel Joseph, who is the Barbara Jordan Chair in Political Values and Ethics at the LBJ School of Public Affairs and founding director of the study for the, of race and democracy at the University of Texas in Austin, his latest book, The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., was published by Basic uh, Books just last year. Very, very new. You all have to uh, just check it out. Pinel, Dr. Pinel Joseph, welcome back. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, and uh, Dr. Joseph, I wondered, I mean, just, I, 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 you likely heard uh, that piece on the Barbados, um, uh, you know, becoming um, a new republic. And uh, the, she talked, this young woman talked about the long walk uh, to freedom for black people, for Bajans uh, like myself. And of course, a lot of your work has been on the long walk to freedom uh, for black people right here in the United States. I wonder if you just wanted to give a quick comment on the significance of what Barbados has done and really tie that um, here to the struggle that black people are making right here in the United States. Uh, Dr. Pinel Joseph. Oh, yeah. No, I believe it's really significant. I, you know, I'm, I'm the proud son of Haitian immigrants. So the Caribbean plays such a huge, huge role in black liberation struggles, black American, but also just pan-African uh, liberation struggles. And we see that, um, you know, we've got, you know, prison abolition activists like uh, Marianne Kaba, whose uh, parents are from, from, from Guinea and who talks about Kwame Touré, uh, formerly Stokely Carmichael. So there's this whole diasporic um, framework for for liberation and 
black people from the Caribbean, including Barbados, the, the, our first biggest waves came in the early 20th century. And when we think about, uh, we usually talk about Marcus Garvey, but there's so many black um, women and, and men from, from other parts of the Caribbean who really transform um, the, the great migration and the diasporas that are happening globally. So usually when we talk about the great migration and Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns, we don't talk about the, the, the concurrent migrations that are happening globally, especially from the Caribbean, right? And so in a lot of ways, when we think about by the early 20th century and things like the Harlem Renaissance, the Chicago Renaissance, the Pittsburgh Renaissance, what's happening in Los Angeles um, in the 1930s and 40s, Caribbean folks are a huge, huge part of that, uh, including folks from Barbados, Haiti, Jamaica. And it's really remarkable that after 300 years, the people of Barbados have decided to, you know, divest from the, 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 the monarchy in that way. And I think it's it's great. And I think you, you heard not only Rihanna, but the prime minister, um, you know, talking about a kind of Caribbean nationalism that historically has been very, very um, progressive in terms of its anti-colonial bent. And that has really informed and infused the anti-colonialism that's happening right here in the United States and black liberation struggles. So I think it's really, it's really great. And um, in a lot of ways, we've come back to some of these um, pan-Africanist impulses because of the movement for Black Lives Matter and because of um, the, the kind of transnational diasporic uh, indigenous movements for human rights that we're seeing sort of flower and flourish all over the world. Right. And, and, and somebody like Malcolm X, um, also had Caribbean roots. I mean, his mother uh, was from Grenada. You have uh, Caribbean roots. I mean, you know, Marcus Garvey. I mean, the the, the list is is long um, because there is that. You know, we were dropped off at different places. You know, with those slave ships coming over, but we are all, you know, in 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 so many ways, um, one uh, diaspora. And the brutality of slavery that happened in Barbados. I mean, the average, the life, um, the life, um, extent, you know, capacity of uh, enslaved people in Barbados was 18 years old. I mean, it's just to show you how brutal it was. And right next uh, Pinal to the village I grew up uh, was found one of the largest uh, slave burial places uh, in the Americas that they found thus far. I mean, close to 600 souls. And we had no idea because we didn't know that particular history. But looking then um, here at, at the United States and just the the, the raging debate and division that's going on right now, the Rittenhouse trial um, and the verdict, controversial verdict there, the Amman Aubrey trial where people felt, well, at least, you know, there was some um, acknowledgement of, of justice, although it doesn't bring him back. And then Charlottesville, where the, the decision was mixed because the federal charges, the, uh, uh, based on the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, which members of Congress are hoping to use um, in the whole aftermath of, of January 6th and the suit they are bringing, that didn't get through. So, Danielle, just uh, give us your thoughts on this and where you think uh, this is. We'll do that before we go on to you talking about the new information about the assassination of Malcolm X. Dr. Joseph. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the, it's, it's great that you mentioned the Ku Klux Klan Act's 
of 1870 and 1871. So uh, basically what we're seeing, and I've got a a book coming out next year called The Third Reconstruction that really places um, this period of 2008 to 2021 in in a larger historical context because we're really rehearsing um, these events that occurred during the period of Reconstruction right after racial slavery, especially... Uh, the period between 1865 um, all the way to 1898. But the reason why you had the Klan Acts and the Congress has a federal investigation of the Klan that opens up in May of 1871 in Washington, D.C., is because of really the hundreds and thousands of political murders, uh, including lynchings, that are happening um, between elections in 1867 and 1871, and they occur before and after, but those are pivotal periods. And the reason why that violence happened is because of the Reconstruction amendments that were happening. So you had people like Thaddeus Stevens, obviously Frederick Douglass, um, but scores of black women and men who were organizing uh, for not just voting rights, but also for economic rights um, as well. And what what white folks do is really do protracted organized violence and they they organize under the banner of the democratic party and they organize not just the clan in Pulaski Tennessee in 1866 of ex-confederates but just different white supremacist groups who call themselves the doughboys the red shirts and so when you look at the the these these groups who are calling themselves similar things in Charlottesville and the Unite the Right rally 2017, the white supremacist assault on the Capitol on January 6th, we are going through the same things that we went through 150 years ago. And Margaret, including the lies about what occurred in Charlottesville and the lies about what occurred uh, on January 6th. So in real time, in the late 19th century, in 1867, 68, 69, 70, 71, even as black folks and white folks are providing public testimony to the whippings and the beatings and the murders that they've experienced, um, white Democrats and white supremacists are lying about those very same things. And we're seeing the same thing now, except that we're seeing the technological innovations of both neoliberalism and neoconservatism um, in terms of spreading those lies and manufacturing that disinformation and people should be very, very um, aware and frightened because last time you had this much disinformation, what occurred was uh, the victory of the lost cause. And of course, the lost cause is the lie that Reconstruction was bad and black people weren't ready for citizenship. And it's the lie that allows for white reconciliation between the North and the South and why you get all the Confederate memorials, why you get Gone with the Wind, Birth of a Nation. And it's the same lie why you have Tom Cotton and um, white supremacists in Congress uh, uh, challenging um, the 1619 Project and coming up with their own lie uh, and saying it's it's critical race theory and they're anti-critical race theory, right? So we're really rehearsing these things um, that we – Sometimes we go back to the civil rights period and the second reconstruction, but it's really the first one we have to take a really hard, hard look at because this is the period where you had Frederick Douglass, where you had 
the, the, the Anna Julia Coopers and the Ida B. Wells who are trying to uh, build what Du Bois later called abolition democracy. Um, and we're in a new period of abolition democracy with all these grassroots organizations, many led by um, black women who are talking about abolition democracy and the movement for black lives. But paralleling that is this real violence. Um, and the violence of Charlottesville and the violence of January 6th, it's really the tip of the iceberg because the bigger, the bigger violence is going to be the political party, in this case the Republican Party, and the corporations and the corporate power that they're all organizing under. Um, uh, and that's going to include law enforcement and military as well. So uh, there, there's a real, real agenda here that continues the agenda of white supremacy that goes back to the 19th century. Um, and in many ways, what the Movement for Black Lives Matter has done is push back against the accommodation that some black people have had with that agenda. Because part of American exceptionalism, when we think about the post-war notion of American exceptionalism, is, is these reconstructionist and these redemptionist tendencies um, mixing in together. And that's how you get Barack Obama. But when you have the reconstructionist and redemptionist uh, agenda together, you're never going to have real justice for the masses of black people, even as you might have individual excellence and black genius recognized. And that's why you see the neoliberalism of the Obamas, because neoliberalism, even as it privatizes um, and, and, and really redistributes wealth from the public to the private sector, it does acknowledge individual excellence. And that's how come you get Oprah Winfrey and Michael Jordan and all that, right? Neoconservatives do the exact opposite, right? They're, they're against any acknowledgement of group difference, right? Um, and they're there to protect groups like the white supremacists who are denying what happened in January 6th. So we're, we're, we're in trouble <laughs> in a lot of ways because so many people don't know this history. You were talking about Barbados and the deep, deep history of Barbados, and it's all connected. It's all connected. Yeah, and um, Dr. Pinel Joseph, I mean, you talk about abolition of democracy, and you might want to uh, fill our audience a little bit uh, um, briefly on that. But also, people ask me all the time, they say, Margaret, you know, people internationally, we hear so much about the atrocities uh, that are going on, but how, what are people doing about it? How are people uh, resisting? I mean, you, you know, the spread of the stand your ground laws uh, since Trayvon uh, Martin, as far as I'm concerned, the new forms of lynching. And um, now, uh, you know, we do have to worry that anybody who sees somebody looking like you and I and say, oh, I felt threatened, could just shoot and kill us, you know what I mean? And, 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 and basically get away with it, um, as the, the Kyle Rittenhouse um, verdict certainly sets the stage for that. Um, but in terms of the movement response, on the one hand, you, talk, you, you talked about the Black Lives Matter uh, movement uh, in the U.S., but it's also an international movement. On the one hand, right, with the abolition democracy focus, and then another movement uh, that is happening and growing right now is the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, um, a fusion approach, right, and uh, making reference 
to uh, the fusion organizing that happened during the period of the first reconstruction of poor white people uh, coming together and, and supporting basically uh, black people. And Chairman Fred Hampton tried to do a bit of that in, in Chicago with uh, bringing the gangs together and, and also some uh, poor white organizing. And, and the prisoners, um, the great California uh, prisoners strike uh, hunger strike that went on uh, for so long, you saw a similar coming together. So uh, talk a little bit about those movements and, and any tensions that you see between them. And I know you're a historian, but you, you study these things um, uh, quite deeply. So tell us about uh, any thoughts on that, and then a quick response to the, the uh, news about uh, Malcolm X and his assassination, who was involved, um, Kenyel Joseph. Well, certainly, when we think about abolition democracy, what Du Bois was um, really theorizing was what happened at the, in the aftermath of the Civil War and this idea. It wasn't just abolition of slavery that black women and men wanted. It was really abolition of systems of structural and economic oppression um, that were impacting black people, but also impacting the white working class as well. And that's why Du Bois looks at Reconstruction as an effort uh, to have a class revolution as well as a racial revolution that's stymied because of white supremacy, but also because of racial capitalism. And so the abolition was the abolition of all forms of oppression that then would lead to deep democracy, right? So in a, in a lot of ways, again, especially with the prison abolition movement, with efforts to defund the police, we have a new abolition democracy movement that goes beyond uh, voting rights. Voting rights are important, but it's really beyond that because it's not just the vote that's going to get us um, the eradication of these systems of extractive capitalism and and racial capitalism and oppression. Um, in terms of fusionism, you know, fusionism is more complicated than I think sometimes people um, want to believe. You know, late 19th century fusionism, uh, the so-called fusionist ticket to times. Um, both Democrats and Republicans, at times whites and blacks, wasn't really great for black people. It's really more of a ticket where uh, there is so much racial violence that at times black people who are overwhelmed numerically in majority white counties uh, in, in, in certain places like North Carolina, Virginia, other places, they, they, they form these fusionist, fusionist tickets where black people don't even really get their their demographic uh, representation among uh, the spoils of the political war, but they get something rather than nothing. But it's really not as great as the heyday of the period of 1868 to 1876, where black people, not only were we in Congress, but there's going to be over a thousand elected officials in the deep South, including we're, we're over 60% of the population in 26 of, of the counties in Mississippi where we are the police force and the judges and the magistrates and the assembly. So we, we have real political power, and that's why so many of us were killed and murdered uh, by just white folks. It's not even just white supremacists. They were all white supremacists in this context virtually. And so when we think about um, the Poor People's Campaign, I think the Poor People's Campaign and Reverend Barber, it's important, but we, we have to connect that to these movements for abolition in terms of abolition. When people like Angela Davis and Mariam Kaba 
and so many different activists talk about, yes, defunding the police and, yes, uh, ending systems of punishment. They're, they're, they're saying that in the same tradition of abolition democracy of the 19th century that they've just ratcheted up and amplified by talking about intersectionalism and these sort of black feminist traditions that make us think more deeply about identity and difference. Um, in a positive way. So you think about Barbara Smith, Audre Lorde, the Combi River Collective, um, the, the deep sort of radical black tradition and black feminist tradition where we're saying, you know, people with disabilities, people who are queer, uh, people um, uh, who are HIV positive and poor, we have to center them um, in our yeah. struggles, right, instead of just marginalizing them, right? So, so women are, are key here in big, big ways. So, you know, I, I think that the thing that we can't forget when we think about poor people is that even within the black church and the tensions around, you know, people who hate queer people, people who hate trans people, we, we all know this is right there, that the, the big thing is abolition democracy means that we no longer have any scapegoats, whether it's externally or internally. And that's tough for people, you know, whether you're Haitian. Yeah or Bayesian, we all have scapegoats within our cultures, right? And it's usually somebody who's weaker than us, right? Somebody who's poor. Right. So the abolition democracy tradition that I think we're seeing globally is saying that we're, we're going to have no more scapegoats. And that means pushing back against racial and economic and male privilege. And it means transforming um, this economic system that we find ourselves in, which is racial right. capitalism that's extractive. And, and, and Pinyel, we're going to have to have you back to talk about the Malcolm piece very, very soon because we really run out of time. i got to get get out of here in, in like about 30 seconds or so. But just fascinating analysis there. So please join us again soon, uh, Dr. Pinyel Joseph. Thank you so very much. Thank you. <laughs> thank thank you. you. All righty. Uh, today's show produced by me, Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank Randall Handy, our audio engineer, our assistant producer, Romero Funes. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and you all, please remember to stay safe.